Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Joy Gruitz. Good morning, everyone, and isn't it a good morning? It is a good morning whenever we have an opportunity to come together and to worship the Lord and to be taught by his word. And so this morning, we are going to turn to the scriptures as we continue our series called Grace. Now, grace by definition means God's unmerited favor. And surely, we are so blessed that he has extended to us his love and his favor favor that we do not deserve nor could we ever earn. And for the past 30 years here at CCC, we have embraced that definition. But we have also used grace as an acronym, an acronym to define core values that are in God's word, key truths that are to be our core values here at CCC. And so the G stands for God deserves to be first. The R stands for? Relationships matter. A, acts of service. And today, C is for compassion for others. And you know, it's not surprising that compassion for others is a core value that we are to embrace as Christians because it is a core trait of our God. There was a moment when God called Moses up into the Mount Sinai to meet with him once again. And God does something remarkable We read in Exodus 34, 5, that the Lord passed by in front of Moses, and he called out and he said, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. In this moment, not only did God declare his title, that he is Lord, that he is Yahweh, but he also revealed to Moses his character. And the very first trait that God reveals about himself is that what? He is a God of compassion and mercy. And you know, it makes sense because in 1 John 4, 16, it states, God is love. God is love. The very character, the very essence of who our God is, is that he is love. And out of that love, he expresses his compassion. A compassion is that that is beyond our human comprehension. And throughout the scriptures, we see this compassion. In fact, we see it on full display at the very beginning of humanity's story. When humanity makes a horrible mistake, a tragic event occurs, and the repercussions of which still plague us today, For we read in the very beginning of our story how Adam and Eve make this tragic error. You see, God had created them with everything that they needed to be fulfilled and to enjoy this unhindered relationship with the Lord. But they made this tragic choice to seek their autonomy from God by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know, God had been so explicit He had said, there are all these trees in the garden, even the tree of eternal life, and you can eat the fruit of any of these trees. I'm just asking that you do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam and Eve, they embraced the lie of the serpent Satan, who said, God really 
isn't telling you the full truth. You see, if you eat of that fruit, you're not really going to die. What will happen is you will be your own God. And so they ate of that fruit, and when they did, that holy nature that they had been created with was now broken. It was now a sin-broken, sin-distorted, sin-inclined nature. That sin disrupted their relationship with God because that is what sin does. Sin disrupts. Sin separates us from our God. And so God, in that moment, he had every justification to wipe out Adam and Eve from the earth. He had been explicit. He had given them everything they need. His instructions were so clear, yet they blatantly disobeyed. So he had every right to just start over with a new Adam and Eve, with a new creation. But instead, he revealed his intent to redeem creation, to redeem mankind. Now it's true in Genesis 3 we read where God's judgment for their sin, there was this judgment for their sin of disobedience because there are always consequences for sin. But it is in his words of judgment to the serpent Satan that God reveals that he is going to send a rescuer. He gives to us the promise of this redeemer, a savior who would conquer the power that Satan held over humanity because of sin, this power that disrupts our relationship with God. But the question is, why would God put into place a plan of redemption that would require the extreme sacrifice of God the Son? Why would he do that? It would have been so much easier to start over with a new creation. Why would he send his Son? because of who God is. He is love, and because he is love, out of that heart of compassion, that extraordinary compassion, he set into motion the promise to send a redeemer, a rescuer. But the point from Adam and Eve's choice of disobedience, which brought sin and death into our world, until the promise of this Redeemer would be fulfilled through Jesus Christ is a millennia of time. In fact, we read that even within the first millennium, the very first thousand to 1500 years, sadly, mankind is giving full expression to that sin-broken nature, giving full expression to the depravity of sin. For we read in Genesis 6 this, now a population explosion took place upon the earth. Now that wasn't a bad thing because God had said, fill the earth. But what was devastating was the condition of mankind. In just the first thousand years, since Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, this is what we read in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That is an astonishing statement. It wasn't just that their deeds were evil, but it says that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil. Not just their deeds, but their thoughts. Not just some of their thoughts, but all of their thoughts, and not just some of the time, but what? All of the time. You know, we think of evil in our recent history, and our minds immediately 
recall in our history how Hitler and those who were with him that were responsible for the Holocaust, how over six million Jews were murdered in just 12 years. That was evil. My husband and I had the opportunity about four years ago to visit the African nation of Rwanda. Maybe some of you saw the movie, Hotel Rwanda. And we visited in the capital city of Kigali, their Holocaust Museum, commemorating the deaths of 800,000 Tutsis, which were a minority in Rwanda. And they were, in 1994, they were murdered by their fellow Rwandans in only 100 days. In just over three and a half, three and a half months, these Rwandans murdered their fellow Rwandans almost a million people. That was evil. We can look at the brutality of slavery that's part of our nation's history, the evil of sex and human trafficking, trafficking in our world today, and then we look at what is happening in Ukraine and we see evil. But as horrendous as these accounts of evil are in Genesis 6, we are reading about a time where not just the actions, but every inclination of the thoughts was only towards evil. Evil was so pervasive, we read in verse 6, that the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It broke God's heart to see what his beautiful creation had become. But then we read in verse 9, there was one exception. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Another translation says, Noah walked in close fellowship with God. Noah remained righteous in this culture of evil. How did he do that? He walked in close fellowship with God. And that in itself could be a whole sermon. But today, what we're focusing on is the condition of this earth, the condition of the people, and God's response to this evil that was so prevalent upon the earth. You see, God had this justification now to wipe out all of humanity because of the evil, but God decided that he would use Noah to preserve humanity, to give humanity a fresh start. So we read in Genesis 6.11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under heaven. A severe judgment for severe evil. And so God was going to cause it to rain 40 days and 40 nights. Even the water underground would erupt. But to save Noah and his family from this violent and destructive flood, God was going to provide a way of salvation, a way of rescue from this flood. And so we read in verse 15, he said, Noah, make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide. And here is our 30th anniversary, 30 out of the Bible tie-in. 
30 cubits, you know how hard that was to find, <laughs> and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it and put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. The ark would provide a place of safety and rescue from this great flood. And it would not just be for Noah and his family, but for the animals, two of every kind, because God was going to allow them to have this fresh start here on earth. Now, the dimensions of the ark, its size and its stability would be crucial to surviving this devastating flood. And so to give you a better idea of the size of this ark, I want to show it to you in comparison to our building here at CCC. So above you, you'll see a blueprint in a minute. There you go. 300 cubics long is 510 feet. The green dotted line that you can't see very well um, but from where I'm standing, if you go all the way back to the exterior wall that's facing Ryan, and you go now through this platform, through the sanctuary, through the foyer, through the portico, all the way through the back, to the back of the main parking lot, that is how long the ark would be. The width of the ark would be about 75 feet wide. So that's probably beyond the width of our two center sections here in the sanctuary. That's how wide. And the height would be about 51 feet high. So if you took a measurement from the floor in front of these steps and took a plumb line and went all the way up to the highest point in the roof here, that would be 51 feet high. Now, currently in Kentucky, there's what's called the Ark Encounter. I know some of you have seen that. And this is a picture of what the Ark might look like using those dimensions. What is interesting, a little fact, is that the dimensions that God gave to Noah is a six-to-one length-to-width ratio. They still use that ratio today to provide stability for shipbuilding. Isn't that amazing? But there is one feature about this ark that I find so intriguing. This is an immense ark. They say you could put 450 semi-truck trailers into this ark. Yet, this ark only had one door. Think about how long that ark is, was. It had one door. My house, which is not nearly the size of an ark, has more than one door, right? Only one door. Think of all the animals and the supplies. You have one door. It seems to me it would be much more logical to have at least two doors, three doors, four, many ways to be efficient to get everything into that ark. But there's only one door. You see, what makes the Bible so remarkable is that there are truths that are foreshadowed in the Old Testament that help us understand and grasp life-changing truths that are in the New Testament. And in this flood story, we see the judgment of death that sin causes. But we also see how a compassionate God provided a way of salvation for Noah and his family and those animals. But it would all be through one door. The ark of rescue, that ark of salvation... The only way that Noah and those animals could be saved from that flood was through that one door. Now in the New Testament, 
out of a heart of compassion, God sent his only begotten son who would suffer and die on the cross to provide a way of salvation for all of mankind, not just for one family, but for all, to be rescued from a judgment of death and to receive a gift of eternal life. But just as Noah's ark had only one door for salvation from that devastating flood, there is only one door for us to receive this gift of eternal life. You see, Jesus says in John 10, 9, I am the what? Door. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. But if God is so compassionate, so full of love, wouldn't it make more sense if God made a way for there to be more than one door? Couldn't there be just many doors through which people could enter this ark of salvation and receive this gift of eternal life. Why only one door and why is Jesus that one door? I mean, people often reason and even argue, it just doesn't seem fair that there should be many ways to be saved. I mean, there are good people in this world, people that are trying to live very good lives. They don't murder, they don't steal, they try to be honest and live good lives and be generous and kind, but they don't believe in Jesus and you're saying that they're not going to be saved? It's a, it's a question that many people have. Let me share with you something that happened to me years ago. Uh, my three daughters were young and I decided it was about actually this, kind, this time of year, this season. And I decided that maybe it would be a good thing for me to get my spring-summer dresses together, put them in the wash, and get them ready for the new season. And um, so I took my dresses, I put them in the wash machine, but there was some extra room. So I took a few little things of my daughter's and I threw them in with the wash. The idea was to take them out of the wash, stick them in the dryer, and then as soon as I put the, you know, the timer and the buzzer on and when it would go off, I'd take the dress out, pull it out, put it on a hanker, everything would be wrinkle-free, and I'm set for the new season. So I put the stuff in the wash, put it into the dryer when the cycle was done, put on the timer, put on the buzzer, the buzzer goes off, I open the dryer door, I pull out the first dress, and I am truly puzzled because on this dress are dark, round stains on my dress. And I'm going, wait, that's not how they were when I put them into the wash. What, what happened to this dress? And I looked at the second dress, the third dress, the fourth dress, and every dress I pulled out had these round, dark stains on them, these blotches. And I, I'm going, what, what happened? And suddenly my eye caught the lint catcher, and in the lint catcher I saw a little piece of paper, and it just had the words I could barely make out, and they said, indigo blue. There must have been crayon in the pockets of one of my daughter's things, and the crayon had melted, the color had melted into my dresses. So I am in panic mode, because 
I know we have no money in the budget for me to buy new dresses, so what am I going to do? So I took the one dress and I went over to the laundry tub, and over my laundry tub I had a shelf. And on the shelf I had all of my cleaners. So the first thing I took was spray and wash. And so I sprayed the stain with spray and wash. And have you ever sprayed, you know, tried to get a stain out and it just does not budge? It doesn't get lighter, it doesn't get smaller. Nothing, it, it was there. So I put spray and wash back and then I grabbed the shout. I figure I'm gonna try to shout it out. By this time I'm shouting a little bit too. And, and so I'm spraying it on and I'm rubbing it and the stain still doesn't move. So now I am really desperate. I'm looking on my shelf, what else do I have? What else do I have? Rug cleaner. You know, I have this great rug cleaner. It takes out a lot of things off the carpet. So I grab the rub cleaner and I put it on the dresses and I'm rubbing and rubbing and nothing is budging these stains. Well, by this time, I must have been a little vocal because Joe walks in and he said, what is going on? What, what's happening? I said, I've ruined, I've ruined all the dresses. There's crayon stains melted into my dresses and nothing is working. He said, why don't you call the cleaners? I said, I don't know, I don't, I don't think cleaners are gonna have anything. He says, well, it's worth a try. So I called the cleaners and the man assured me that they had a stain remover for crayons. It's crayon stains. So I dropped those dresses off. A few days later, I'm driving back to the cleaners and I am preparing myself to be disappointed because I have taken things to the cleaners with stains on them. And then when I go to pick them up, there's this little tag at the top, and it says, like, if we tried anything else, we're going to destroy the garment. So I am prepared to see that little tag. So I go into the counter. The man brings the dresses. I pull up the plastic, and I'm amazed. My dresses look like they have never had a stain on them. They look brand new. And you know what? I gladly paid that man what he was charging me to clean those dresses, to remove those stains. You see, there was nothing in my possession. There was nothing on my shelf that could remove the stain of sin. And you see, when it comes to sin, there is nothing on our shelves that can remove the stain of sin. You see, doing good things, being good, being kind, being generous, being truthful, being honest, honoring your parents, those are good things. And God blesses us when we do that which is good. It isn't as if God ignores it. No, God sets into motion blessing in our lives when we choose to do that which is good. But when it comes to the gift of salvation, when it comes to the removing the stain of sin, Good deeds can't touch it. You see, going to church, reading the Bible, praying every day, those are good things that we need to do because they bring into our lives the blessing of spiritual strength and maturity. But it, when it comes to dealing with the stain of sin, good deeds can't touch it. The only one who has made it possible for that stain of sin to be removed is Jesus. Amen. You see, God the Son 
was born holy and unlike Adam and Eve, for 33 years he chose to live a holy life. He chose God's will rather than his will, the Father's will rather than his personal will, so that on the cross, on the cross, the sinless Christ, the Father could pour into the sinless Christ our sin so that when his blood was shed, it would be blood that could remove the stain of sin because he paid the debt of death that we would owe. Only the blood of Jesus has the power to remove the stain of sin and he paid it all. This is why Jesus is the door. This is why he is the way. And the thing is, this door is open to everyone. It is not an exclusive door for one family. It says in 1 John 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world. He didn't just die for those who would accept him. He also died for those who would reject him. In Hebrews 2.9, it says, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. And then we read in John 14, Jesus declares, read it with me, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. See, Jesus spoke the truth when he says he is the door. He is the way to eternal life. And as believers who have entered through that door and received the compassionate gift of salvation, who understand that Jesus is the one who has rescued us from that judgment of eternal death and in purchase with his sacrifice, the ability for us to have this gift of eternal life. It is now our mission. It is now our mission to share this good news with others. The good news that Jesus is the door. Remember Jesus' instructions. He says in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. His commission to us is that we are to reach out to the unsaved, to share the life-saving message, this good news that Jesus is our rescuer. He is our savior from this judgment of eternal death. But you know, it isn't always easy to do in the culture that we live in that so often stereotypes Christians as intolerant, narrow-minded, and even bigoted people, people who are just out of step with, you know, today's cultural preferences. And so given even this cancel culture that we live in, it becomes easy for us as believers to respond like a fort that's under attack. Seal the gates, close the borders, protect yourself from the darts and the arrows. But that is not what the first century church did when they faced opposition, and neither should we today. You know, several years ago, I was startled by a quote by a man named Penn Gillette. Penn Gillette is partners with a man called Teller, and they perform magic acts. Here's a picture of Penn and Teller. Penn is the big guy, Teller is the little guy. And one of the trademark acts, or trademarks of their act, is that they add humor by Teller, the short one, remains silent throughout the whole act. And Penn does all the talking. Well, Penn is not just vocal 
during his act. He is known as a very vocal atheist. And a few years ago, Penn posted a video telling about a man who showed up to one of his after show meet and greet sessions. And at this session, Penn caught the eye of this man who was standing off to the side, just kind of patiently waiting there. And Penn realized that this was a man who had been an audience volunteer in the show from the night before. And so Penn, recognizing the man, went up to him. And immediately the man began to engage with Penn in a conversation. And Penn said he was sincere, he was complimentary. And then the man said to him, I brought something for you. And he handed Penn a New Testament Bible. And he said to Penn, I've written something in it for you. And even though Penn is a very vocal atheist, he said he was moved by the gesture. He said this man was kind and nice, and I love this, and sane. He recognized this Christian was sane. And then he said he looked me in the eyes and then he gave me this Bible. And then Penn went on to say how he respected this man because this man knew that Penn was an atheist. He knew that it must have been difficult for this man to have the boldness to approach Penn and engage with Penn and hand him this Bible. And Penn remarked that this man's actions and his words were kind and caring. And then Penn makes this statement. He says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize or evangelize. If you believe there is a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's really not worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe eternal life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you, and this is more important than that. Now, certainly, I'm not advocating that we go around tackling the unsaved. And I think his use of the word hate is extreme. But it's important, I think, for us as Christians to hear what he's saying. That if we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, that he is this door to salvation and he is the door, then we shouldn't allow what people may think of us or even the labeling or the rejection we may experience that nothing should, be, should keep us from sharing the good news and to do it in a way that expresses the love of God. And so how do you do that? The answer is the C in grace with compassion. That's what that man did. He approached Penn in a caring and kind and compassionate way. He didn't hurl scriptures at him. He didn't point a finger of condemnation, but engaged with Penn in a caring and compassionate way. And Penn accepted that Bible. It was a seed that that man planted in, that man, in Penn's life. So here is the challenge for us today. Are we willing to reach out with compassion to those who need to hear the good news that Jesus is the door to salvation, even if it puts us in uncomfortable situations? 
Are we willing to interrupt our plans and the busyness of our own agendas and make the sacrifice of time to engage with those who need to hear the good news that Jesus saves? Are we willing to reach out with that gentleness and kindness even if, it, even if we risk being misunderstood or labeled or rebuffed or rejected? Or as Penn said, even if it's socially awkward. You see, the greatest gift of compassion is not to stay comfortable, church. It's not to stay safe and keep this good news to ourselves, but to share the good news with those who need to embrace it. Would you bow your heads? I know this morning, this is a challenging message because... It is hard at times for us to move outside of our comfort zone. It's a challenging message, but we are living in challenging times, and it is time for us to move beyond the safe walls of the church. So this morning, like me, because I am preaching this message not just to you, but to me as well, that if you have this desire for a fresh passion to share the good news that Jesus is this door to salvation, If you want to receive this discernment to know who God wants you to reach and to have the wisdom to know what to say, if you want to be able to engage with those who are unsaved with the compassion, a compassion that is bathed with kindness and gentleness that can break down walls of skepticism and unbelief, would you stand with me as we pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us as believers, empower us as a church, that CCC would be a church that was known for reaching out to those who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your plan of redemption. We thank you for what it cost your son to be able to be the door, the way. We thank you that you have moved into our lives and transformed our lives. And right now, Father, we are asking by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us no longer uh, that we would have a spirit of fear, but that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would give us a spirit of power and a spirit of love, a spirit of discernment, Lord. Give us the wisdom to know what to say. Let us see people in our community. Let us see that one at work, that one in our classmate at school, or maybe it's someone we meet in the grocery store. Father, let us not be so busy with what's going on in our lives that we fail to see the person you have put into our lives that's crossing our paths that need to hear this good news that Jesus saves. Amen.